Guardian Unlimited. My topic for discussion today is civil liberties and the relationship between parliamentary sovereignty and the rule of law. As the Blair era draws to a close, what is the record of new labour in this highly charged field? Are critics like Henry Porter right to accuse it of waging a wholesale assault on traditional civil liberties, which has significantly weakened the rights of the citizen in favour of the state and undermined the rule of law? Or was Mr Blair right when he said that large parts of the legal and political establishment who complain about the erosion of civil liberties are out of touch with the people? There is no one better place to put the government's case than David Blunkett. During his three and a half years as Home Secretary, he introduced a host of controversial legislation, including ID cards, ASBOs and anti-terror laws, which allowed foreign suspects to be held indefinitely without charge. Since leaving office, in his column in The Sun, he has continued to wage war against what he once called airy-fairy civil liberties and the judiciary, who he often accuses of flouting the will of Parliament and passing unduly lenient sentences. Well, David Blunkett, Roy Jenkins is widely regarded as the most progressive and liberal Home Secretary since the war, uh, and I wondered whether you envy that reputation. No, I don't. I mean, I, I don't begrudge it him. He was very fortunate to have some very able backbenchers who put forward a range of extremely liberal and, uh, in my view, uh, appropriate private members' bills, which were obviously carried. I disagreed with him on one major issue, which he discussed with me before his death, just as I was about to become Home Secretary, which was his belief that the Home Office could do very little about crime. I thought that was a, a message of terrible despair, and one which certainly the constituency I represent wouldn't have tolerated for a moment. But when you set out as being Home Secretary, was it your object to uh, adopt a progressive and liberal approach? It was my object to adopt a balanced approach between liberal measures on sentencing, which I never fully managed to achieve, and on the revisions of things like sex offenders, sex offences legislation, and on domestic violence, and uh, on a sensible drugs policy, balanced by measures that secured the confidence of the neighbourhoods I represent the people who were worried about unfettered and uncontrolled borders and the difficulty of persuading people that difference was not something to be frightened of but something to be welcomed. You probably know that Lord Stain, a retired law lord, said that our government has been prone to creeping authoritarianism. Is that something that you accept? No, I don't. I think the government's had to respond to unique circumstances outside wartime uh, in relation to the... 11th of September events and subsequently the 7th of July of uh, 2005. I think in those circumstances a government that had not acted would have been in dereliction of its duty and the former Lord Chief Justice Harry Wolfe back in 2002 said that uh, human rights legislation was not a suicide pact and I agree with that. But he also said, didn't he, by upholding the Human Rights Act the courts are not interfering with the will of Parliament, the judges are protecting the public by ensuring that the government complies with the laws made by Parliament? I don't disagree with that. I think where the judiciary ensure that the law that has been passed by Parliament is adhered to, then they're doing their duty. Where I disagree is when there is an interpretation of law, whether it's the Human Rights Act or specific pieces of legislation, which clearly conflict with the intention of the government at the time as expressed in the two Houses of Parliament, understood by members of parliament and, uh, 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 in both houses, or where there is a decision 
to challenge what Parliament intended, even though it was clearly laid down. Where we fail is in Parliament is where we are unclear, where what we lay down is ambiguous, where it leads to doubt about the intention. And in those circumstances, then of course the judiciary have a right to uh, to, to interpret. Well, can we uh, look at that area first? Because when you were Home Secretary, you were not slow in publicly and quite vociferously criticising judges for what you described as rewriting statutes passed by Parliament and attacking them for being undemocratic. Yes, it's my view that the development of judicial review from the the late 70s, very early 80s, was an attempt by the judiciary to push the boundaries of their constitutional position. And our constitution is based very much on maintaining the different checks and balances that exist. And one of them clearly is the judiciary's check on the unfettered power of the executive, the misuse of administrative power and the extension of action which is not justified by the the law of the land but it it isn't in my view the job of judges to rewrite or to challenge legislation on the grounds that they don't like it or they think it's unwise or unjust I think it's the job of Parliament to correct Parliament's own mistakes. Well I wonder if we could look at some examples of just this issue The first one, you'll remember, was the asylum case to do with rules introduced by the Home Office when you were Home Secretary to withhold food and shelter from asylum seekers who didn't apply at the port of entry. And those rules were held by a High Court judge at first instance to be inhumane and a breach of the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, when that decision came out, You made a statement saying that you were fed up with Parliament debating issues and judges overturning them, and if the will of Parliament and the elected government is being frequently overridden by individual judges, people are quite entitled to ask why they should bother to vote at general elections. But when the Court of Appeal heard the case, with the Master of the Rolls presiding, they unanimously upheld the judge and held that you had been treating the applicants unfairly. Now, that wasn't the judges rewriting the law, that was them interpreting the law. Yes, in part it was. Uh, And this is where the complications exist, and where, if I had my time again, I'd be much more careful and much more explicit in terms of those elements where I felt that the judiciary were overstepping the boundaries of their appropriate role, and where I felt that even if I disagreed with them, they had the right to do so. On Section 55, the issue that you've raised, there, there were several key elements. Things that angered me were ideas that judges should lay down that we had to put in a whole range of different languages, very large posters in airports and at ports, telling people that they had a right to claim asylum the moment they landed on the grounds that we had to warn them, otherwise they might spend weeks and months wandering about in Britain before they decided that they were really refugees. On the other hand, the judges were correct to draw attention to the fact, uh, which we as politicians had not actually uh, laid down as administrative practice, uh, which was the issue of whether someone who was being interviewed would actually have a decision taken by someone who had not conducted that interview. And I believe they were right about that. And had we known that was taking place, we'd have corrected it much more quickly. In fact, some of the 
issues on which we failed under Section 55 had been corrected by the time it went to the Court of Appeal. But you wrote an article in the News of the World saying it's time for judges to learn their place. And again, if the will of Parliament and the elected government is being frequently overridden by individual judges, people are entitled to ask why they should bother to vote. Now, as it turns out, this wasn't the will of Parliament being overridden by an individual judge, and your interpretation was simply wrong. Well, I, not, not wholly so. I've described that there are different elements to the, these rulings. Sometimes we lost on one out of three, or we, we may have lost out of one out of five. And in those circumstances, I might have to accord the judges a correct hit on one goal, uh, but a loss on the match as a whole. My worry about the judges and immigration was that, as Harry Wolfe would quite rightly discuss with me when we met privately, there was an obligation on the judiciary to take into account public policy, the implications of their actions, where an, the right of an individual, not a citizen of this country, but the right of an individual to particular facilities that were only made available to our citizens because of the building of entitlement could well undermine the liberal democracy we're in by putting power in the hands of those who would have no truck whatsoever with the Human Rights Act or the European Convention or any of our norms. And that is that I, I experienced that in my constituency day in, day out, where um, last year, the British National Party got three and a half thousand votes in the local elections. But isn't one of the pillars of liberal democracy uh, the rule of law? And does it not undermine the rule of law when the Home Secretary publicly attacks individual judges, uh, effectively accusing them of being undemocratic and rewriting laws? I attacked in terms of being undemocratic and rewriting laws a range of actions, not, not an individual, and I've never attacked an individual judge as far as I'm aware. As a person, I'm, I'm raising issues about whether the public policy changes that judges are bringing in are legitimate in circumstances where Parliament has to be held to account by the public in a way that the judiciary can never be held to account by anybody, because there is no accountable procedure and process, including removal and where the consequences of the decisions taken have to be managed by the politicians, not the judges. Isn't it an attack on an individual judge when you say that the will of Parliament is overridden by individual judges? Well, individual judges are making individual judgments, and if their judgment actually is to override what Parliament intended, that is very different to individual judges interpreting where it is unclear what they think the will of Parliament intended to be. And on the latter, I would accord them the right to do so. On the former, I wouldn't. You, of course, now have a column in The Sun. Uh, and one of the themes in your articles is uh, attacks on individual decisions, uh, bewigged menaces who make the law look like an ass, give that judge a brain transplant, freebooting judge. Those are all related to individual decisions. They, they are, but I, I, I headlines and what The Sun write, I, you know, I've never talked about brain transplants in my actual written column. I'm interested in getting across the message that politicians democratically elected can make a difference, can make a difference to the lives of people that I represent and the issues about which they're deeply concerned. I mean, just at the moment, we have an opinion poll of 2,000 people, three quarters of whom would like to stop people coming into this country to work legitimately from abroad. I found that absolutely appalling. And I don't want anything to be done that reinforces that sort of view of the difference 
of people coming into our country openly and legally. But the role of the judge is simply independently to interpret the law that is in front of him uh, and those kinds of political considerations are really not for him or her. Well, I agree with that, but what I'm describing, and it started with the development of judicial review and it's been developed quite rapidly over recent years, is the judges feeling that they do have an obligation. Now, they may feel they've got an obligation. They may disagree fundamentally with the law that's been passed. I mean, Lord Justice Hoffman disagreed to the point where he thought that the Act of Parliament that I'd uh, taken through the, uh, the Commons and the Lords, the Anti-Terrorism, Crime and Security Act Part 4, was a bigger threat to uh, uh, this country than uh, Al-Qaeda. That's a point of view. It's not a point of view, however, in my view, that should colour the decisions taken on the facts presented to the judge, because that is their job, and my job is to be held to account, and was when I was Home Secretary, for decisions taken. And the criticism that poured down on my head from both the liberal left for being illiberal and the far right for being far too liberal. You've mentioned the Belmarsh case, the House of Lords decision that dealt with your anti-terrorism act, and you mentioned Lord Hoffman's judgment, but the fact is that the House of Lords held 8-1 that that Act of Parliament, which you introduced two months after 9-11, was disproportionate, discriminatory, uh, and your order derogating from the Convention on Human Rights, the European Convention, uh, was quashed. Yes, and the appeal court, before it went to the House of Lords, ruled unanimously that they believed that Parliament had the power to undertake Part 4 of the Anti-Terrorism, Crime and Security Act and were correct in what they'd done, even though I imagine that uh, Harry Wolfe, who chaired that particular hearing, might have disagreed with what we'd done, but accepted that Parliament had the legitimate right. Having debated the issues about both discrimination and proportionality, having debated those, came to the conclusion that Parliament had the right to do so. When the House of Lords held that this Act was incompatible with the European Convention for Human Rights, the government backed down and did not insist on trying to implement it, and it changed the law. If you'd been Home Secretary still, would you have backed down as well? The judgment came a day, the day after I stepped down in circumstances where physically and emotionally I was um, out for the count. And it, it was probably, and I reflect this in my diaries, a moment when I would not have been in the best position to have made a balanced judgment. So I hope I would have had the common sense to have, if I'd remained in office, to have taken Christmas and New Year and to have thought and discussed widely what needed to be done. Had I been in a position to look forward and to see that the development of the proposals on control orders that uh, my successor brought in would eventually itself be overtaken and overturned by the judiciary, I probably would have decided to ask Parliament, and it would have been a, a moot point as to whether it was carried, uh, to have retained the existing powers and to have continued the drive, which has been more successful, in reaching agreement with countries who would receive and give guarantees of safety for those individuals about which this particular judgment was being made, namely non-British citizens who couldn't be returned to their country of origin because they were threatened with death or torture. But if you had retained those powers in the meanwhile and kept the Belmarsh detainees locked up in Belmarsh, that would have been saying, although the highest court in the land has held that act and your power to do so 
contrary to the European Convention on Human Rights, nonetheless, you're going to go ahead and do it? Well, only if Parliament actually reaffirmed their decision. I mean, that, that would have been the process, and the correct process. It wouldn't have been the Home Secretary or anyone else simply saying, I'm sorry, we're not going to do it. I accept entirely that we would have had to have gone back and, uh, and asked Parliament whether they wished to uh, reaffirm their original decision. Uh, it, would have still, it would have still left us with the major issues that were subject to the consultation. I'd published a year earlier, which came on the back of Lord Newton's committee, with which I didn't wholly agree, but I did understand the point they were making, which was, is there a way of inculcating into our existing procedures and hearings a, a system that could have incorporated the Special Immigration Appeals Commission uh, Court of Superior Record process that had been invented as part of the compromise in getting the Act through in the autumn of 2001. But this would have provoked a constitutional crisis, uh, really unprecedented, wouldn't it? Well, it may have done if Parliament had reaffirmed its original decision and, of course, people would have had the right to go to the European Court in those circumstances. Uh, we would have had to have made a decision on the outcome of the European Court in terms of what we did but I think it's worth just recalling that five years ago the debate was whether we should be pulling out of the European Convention. I was against pulling out of the European Convention on Human Rights. I still am. In that uh, House of Lords case, Lord Hoffman described the powers that you brought in in this way. Someone who has never committed any offence and has no intention of doing anything wrong may be reasonably suspected of being a supporter on the basis of some heated remarks overheard in a pub. The question is whether the United Kingdom should be a country in which the police can come to such a person's house and take him away to be detained indefinitely without trial. Yeah, well, I think that was a complete misunderstanding of the process that had been undertaken for certification of those individuals, the evidence that had been provided. I wish fervently that we had and wish we could develop a system where the kind of evidence that was put in private to the Special Immigration Appeals Commission with agreed and vetted representation for those individuals and then dealt with on appeal could actually be done in the normal court system because I don't think that anyone, including Lord Hoffman, would then have had any justification whatsoever for quite erroneous remarks like that. When people described back in the autumn of 2001 that we were likely to pick up and we were likely to uh, hold hundreds of individuals in the end having seen a very, very large number of uh, propositions. We certificated, I certificated, 17, some of two of whom left the country. Uh, others were released prior to the hearing. You mentioned uh, hearings in private. One of the features of that Act was that suspects who were locked up, uh, sometimes for up to three years, did not have the right to know what the allegations against them were or to see the evidence against them. As we know, a great deal of what could not be presented in open court and to the individuals but was presented to counsel on their behalf was material that would actually have been detrimental to the work of the security and intelligence services. And we have to make a judgment in a democracy and with our free and open system just how much material we give to those who are themselves part of a network determined to bring this country to its knees, not, not to gain a cause, not to negotiate or to use democracy to bring about a change, but actually to be prepared to use suicide bombers to destroy the very democracy and freedom that we're now discussing. Well, 
you say bringing the country to its knees. You'll recall that Lord Hoffman, in his judgment on the Belmarsh case, said whether we would survive Hitler hung in the balance, but there is no doubt we shall survive al-Qaeda, the real threat to the life of the nation, in the sense of a people living in accordance with its traditional laws and political values, comes not from terrorism, but from laws such as these. I was referring to that when we discussed this a moment ago. I mean, I just find it breathtaking. I mean, I don't know whether he has evidence that I didn't have about the capacity of al-Qaeda. I believe at this moment in time, it is correct to say that we don't, we don't face the same threat that we faced in 1940, but nor do we have the same act that was uh, implemented literally overnight I'm re referring to Regulation 18B, where people were literally picked up and put in jail without the, uh, the, the formal process of being represented, of being able to go back uh, every three months for review of their case, uh, in, and their case being ha heard firstly in a court of superior record and then through to the House of Lords. That wasn't open to them, and uh, in fact, uh, MPs were picked up under Regulation 18B, including a right-wing Conservative MP. Um, that regulation was uh, taken to the House of Lords, and in his famous dissenting judgment, Lord Atkin uh, criticised it. And the next year, Winston Churchill, who of course was a Home Secretary in his day, uh, said this, the power of the executive to cast a man into prison without formulating any charge known to the law, and particularly to, to deny him the judgment of his peers, is in the highest degree odious and the foundation of all totalitarian government, whether Nazi or communist. Yes, I don't disagree with that. I think it's really important that people have the right to have any ruling against them challenged in the way that we did build into the procedure. And I'd be very happy, and I said so when we launched the consultation and in a speech to uh, uh, a very wide range of people involved with justice in India, if people would have come forward more rapidly with a methodology of being able to incorporate hearings into our normal process which provided for security and intelligence material to be kept out of the hands of the very people who would use it against us. You referred to the control order regime that was introduced by Charles Clark and that case also went to the courts and when the High Court judge held that orders detaining people for 18 hours a day in a one-bedroom flat, not being allowed into common parts of a building, with visitors subject to vetting by the Home Office and subject spot searches, he held that was unlawful. In your column in The Sun, you attacked the judge for exercising power without responsibility and decision-making without accountability and said that that was bedeviling our country and undermining our democracy. Yeah, I believe that. I, I believe that having overruled detention and then having had substituted by Parliament the control orders and then overturning the control orders, the judiciary actually do not provide Parliament and politicians with a means of describing to the public how it is that the will of the democracy of Parliament can actually be implemented because there was no doubt whatsoever of what Parliament intended. They intended on the back of the House of Lords judgment to substitute Belmarsh or Woodhill as they'd previously been offered with very much better conditions but they turned it down or Broadmoor in some cases to substitute people being held there 24 hours a day 
for a control order system which was much more humane but which sought to stop people making contact with the network with which they'd been involved and the organisations which are threatening the life and well-being of our country as we saw on the 7th of July 2005. And I feel that if constantly Parliament substitute in trying to meet the demands of the judiciary an alternative system and that gets overturned, it leaves Parliament bereft of measures to protect our country and to respond to democratic requirements. But aren't you there again holding yourself out as somebody who is interpreting the Act passed by Parliament? Because in fact in that case, after you wrote your article in The Sun, the Court of Appeal, presided over by the Lord Chief Justice and the Master of the Rolls present and the President of the Queen's Bench Division, upheld the judge and said that the orders amounted to a deprivation of liberty contrary to Article 5 of the Convention. Yes, they did. I disagree with them. But you're not trained as a lawyer. No, no, but I'm a parliamentarian. If Parliament determines something which is a response to a, a previous uh, judicial judgment, that something is disproportionate or is discriminatory or is too harsh and Parliament respond positively to that and change the circumstances and then those circumstances are overruled, we might as well ask the judiciary to determine from the beginning what should be done rather than Parliament. But it is the function of the judges to interpret the laws that have been laid down by Parliament. Here Parliament uh, passed a successor act to deal with the problem of the House of Lords decision on Belmarsh and it's their job to interpret the will of Parliament. It's not the will of the government, it's the will of Parliament that's being interpreted. I, I, I think it's only the interpretation of the will of Parliament where the will of, the, uh, the will of Parliament is unclear or ambiguous. That's where I disagree with the stance taken by the judiciary, not that they should not challenge the executive, where the executive exceed the powers given to them by the democratically elected Parliament but where ju judicial challenge takes place, where there is no doubt as to what Parliament intended. Well, can we take another case, the Afghan hijack case? After they were acquitted on retrial, they applied for discretionary t leave to remain because they had been sentenced to death by the Taliban. They were granted that leave against your opposition as Home Secretary. And the matter then went through the courts. And when the courts upheld the decision of the tribunal, Tony Blair publicly attacked their decision as an abuse of common sense. And you came out in the sun supporting that and saying that it was indeed an abuse of common sense. But actually, what was decided in that case was that the Home Office had been guilty of a very clear abuse of power in not dealing with the case expeditiously and waiting for a year to introduce a new policy so as to be able to get rid of them. Well, when Jack Straw had to deal with the hijack, there was an international convention that remains and there was an understanding that hijacking planes was contrary to international law and unacceptable in terms of encouragement of a practice that would have and has in the past bedeviled the ability to deal with circumstances in a rational and acceptable fashion. And I wouldn't dispute that the Home Office's procedures could be speeded up. It was one reason why I took leg legislative power to try and change some of the completely outdated procedures with which the Home Office was struggling uh, in the four years that I was there. I think that the, the real issue here is, are people at risk if they are sent back to their country of origin when we have, uh, despite the struggle that's going on at the moment in uh, around Kandahar and in southern Afghanistan to 
combat the remaining tal Taliban have cleared the country sufficiently for people who are not hijackers, who are just ordinary citizens, to return home. Because otherwise the message is, so long as you can reach our soil by whatever means, you will remain here. But the judge went out of his way to say, bearing in mind some of the newspaper headlines, it's important there's no misunderstanding. The issue in the case is not whether the executive should take action to discourage hijacking, but whether the executive should be required to take such action within the law as laid down by Parliament and applied by the courts. And he held that the Home Secretary's uh, conduct had been inexcusable, awarded him indemnity costs, and the Court of Appeal congratulated him on an impeccable judgment. Well, I'm, I'm sure they do. <laughs> I'm sure that's the case. I think that the four Home Secretaries that have had to deal with the Afghan hijack would have wished that in the very early stages we'd been able to deal with this expeditiously. But of course, uh, as well as procedures, there are also things known as appeals, and they exercise their right, and in the end they won. I think it's a, I, I, I still believe that it was a judgment that uh, provides any democratic country with a major headache, but it is the right of the judiciary to do so. But where you have a case like this, which is decided by a High Court judge, then goes to the Court of Appeal, uh, does it not undermine the rule of law if the Prime Minister uh, and a former Home Secretary publicly attack the judgment as being an abuse of common sense when that judgment is then upheld by higher courts? Well, no, I don't think it does. I think that um, in a democracy, the ju judiciary has a, a perfect right to disagree with politicians and politicians with the judiciary. Well, I wonder if we could take in another example, this time taken in the context of the criminal justice system. The uh, recent notorious case of Sweeney, the paedophile who sexually assaulted a three-year-old girl, uh, and although he was sentenced to life in prison, he was only going to serve five and a bit years before being eligible for release on license. Now, John Reid, uh, now Home Secretary, called on that, as he called it, unduly lenient sentence uh, to be reviewed, and number 10 Downing Street supported him, and you in your column in The Sun headline our justice system is a sick joke, well, you say you're not I responsible for that. I don't the uh, but what you did say was, like so many Sun readers, I despair when a few of our judges deal with dangerous criminals as though they were simply naughty boys. Now, what actually happened was that the Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, uh, having reviewed the papers, said, I'm satisfied that as the law stands, on the current sentencing guidelines, the Court of Appeal would not interfere with the sentence. Well, it, the, as you know, this was an incredibly complex situation in terms of the interpretation of indeterminate sentences. Uh, firstly, in terms of a Court of Appeal judgment. Secondly, in terms of the Sentencing Guidelines Council, which I was responsible for setting up, but not for their decisions, having conceded that the Lord Chief Justice should chair it. Uh, and that there should be very widespread representation from the judiciary on it uh, to interpret in indeterminate sentences in a way that, frankly, I certainly never intended. I believe that indeterminate sentences meant indeterminate, not that they should be judged on half what would have been the case had they not been indeterminate, which is an extraordinary way of interpreting it. Well, it was in fact... Uh, I mean, the Attorney General is the independent law officer. Oh, yes, it's he, his he job, did. isn't it? No, no, he, he did, because he, having reviewed it, he said, in the light of the Court of Appeal on a pre previous case and on the Sentencing Guidelines Council's advice, then the judge probably, within those terms, did what he thought was right. I mean, obviously, the law's going to have to be changed 
and this is an interesting point to override the interpretation of the Sentencing Guidelines Council, which was not our intention. We, we, were, we were prevailed upon in the Commons and the Lords not to, not to prescribe the Sentencing Guidelines Council any further than those areas of the most heinous crimes which I'd insisted should go on the face of the bill in relation to, uh, to, to murder and the, the sentences that should follow them. And in the end, we agreed to that, that we would give judges discretion and the Sentencing Guidelines Council discretion. But now we, we have to keep returning to these things when what is supposed to be indeterminate suddenly becomes determinant. But isn't it a bit rich for you to be criticising the judge when all he was doing was applying, first of all, the provision you brought in in the Criminal Justice Act, which is that you get automatic remission of 50% and released on licence? Yes, well, in this game of chess that we're playing, you, you've just got me in check, not checkmate, because I do have to admit that when I wrote the column, I hadn't realised that either the Sentencing Guidelines Council or appeal, Court of Appeal Judgment had actually skewed what was originally intended in the Criminal Justice and Sentencing Act 2003. So we, you, you, you're in an advantageous position, pawn to knight three. Well, let's see if we can go to checkmate. Does well, it not? I hope not. <laughs> Does the, it? the interview stops at checkmate. <laughs> <laughs> Does it not undermine the rule of law and the public confidence in the judiciary if somebody as eminent as a former Home Secretary and the serving Prime Minister cast doubt as being unduly lenient on a decision which the, its own law officer says was impeccable. Yes, I still think it was unduly lenient. I now understand better, not having, uh, since I left the Home Office, been concentrating entirely on every judgment that's been made uh, and every uh, piece of advice of the Sentencing Guidelines Council, I now accept that whilst I believe the sentence was unduly lenient, and still do, the judge in question may well have done what he believed to be correct. Can we look at possibly the other greatest potential constitutional crisis when you were Home Secretary, which was the famous so-called ouster clause in the 2004 Asylum Bill? That was a clause where you wanted to exclude the power of the courts judicially to review decisions of uh, asylum adjudicators and appeal tribunals. And that led to a huge constitutional rumpus in which the serving Lord Chief Justice, Lord Wolfe, in a speech in Cambridge, said that, revealed publicly, that the judges had advised the government that a clause of this nature uh, was fundamentally in conflict with the rule of law and should not be contemplated by any government if it had respect for the rule of law. Now. Why did you ignore that advice? Because we'd reached a situation where having agreed, and we were in quite uniquely, I think, in negotiations with the judiciary about what we should do uh, in relation to the appeal system uh, for asylum, the most extensive appeal system that existed in the world. We were in negotiations about how we could not only speed up that system in the best interests of everyone, but avoid the continuing judicial review of decisions on minute technical uh, issues, not relating to the justice of the case, but the circumstances of the individual at the time. And we'd actually had incidents where people had gone nine times back to the court once they'd been through all the existing appeals process, simply in order to stop us removing 
them from the country and in some cases doing so spuriously when they were claiming that for instance in one case that they were going to be unsafe in Germany and we have to say look you can appeal from Germany if you want and in the end that was done uh, using video conferencing you can appeal from Germany to claim that Germany is an unsafe country if you want but we can't possibly have you here year after year uh, costing a, a, an arm and a leg and creating the kind of antagonism to asylum which I was trying to avoid. But again, the Lord Chief Justice in that speech, in that lecture, said, I'm not over-dramatising the position if I indicate that if this clause were to become law, it would be so inconsistent with the spirit of mutual respect between the different arms of government that it could be the catalyst for a campaign for a written constitution. Immigration and asylum involve basic human rights. Well, they do, and it's the question, as it always is in our system, including our domestic law, as to how many appeals, how many challenges you can have if you have a fair and accepted fair system of appeal that checks the original decision-making, that actually deals with the perfectly reasonable issue of administrative law and justice, and in the end then finds itself bedeviled by what I was describing much earlier, the judicial review system, which has developed over the last 25 years in a way not previously uh, present or envisaged in our country. And our country wasn't somehow grossly unfair and unjust in the 1950s before the challenges around administrative law and, and the investigations that took place in, as to how we could improve our administrative uh, legal challenges tribunal system to make it work better. Lord Wolfe also said that I understand the Lord Chancellor has recently said the clause is not intended to exclude habeas corpus. In view of the language of the clause, this surprises me. Well, it, never, it, it was never intended to do that, but it was intended to try and get to a situation where at the point that someone was being removed from the country, in some instances for the third or fourth time of having got them as far as the airport, we're not now talking about the removal centre, uh, a challenge is put in, the system then starts to grind its way through again. By the time we organise to get that person, having spent months agreeing with their country of origin to take them and to have them redocumented and to have got the flights organised to go through the process all over again. In other words, it became a game. But it had wider ramifications, didn't it? Lord Stain, in his lecture at the Attlee Foundation, described it as a wholly oppressive attempt to immunise manifest illegality, contrary to the rule of law, and if it would be effective in an area not even involving the war against terrorism, why should it not serve as a model in other areas? Well, it didn't serve in a model for other areas because it was specific to the particular game that was being played in preventing, having gone through the whole of our appeal system, people being removed to their country of origin when they simply didn't want to go, not because they were threatened with death or torture, but, but they wanted to stay. And in circumstances of public policy, and there have to be overriding public policy requirements, firstly, you have to be able to carry through the, the will of, in this case, Parliament, to carry out a procedure in a, a manifestly reasonable fashion and in a reasonable time. Secondly, you have to take account of the administrative difficulties if you don't allow that to happen in returning people to countries who don't particularly want people back who don't want to be there or may have committed crimes, and quite a lot of them had uh, in their country of origin and sometimes were claiming that they were unsafe in their country of origin 
specifically because they committed a crime in that country of origin and thirdly where because of the in enormity of the interest in asylum we had to be seen to have policies that worked not ones that were purely in the interests of the individual not wanting to go back to their country but in the interests of our public policy here in Britain where racism and prejudice and fear of difference bedevil our political debate. But the issue of principle is whether it is in a democracy right that the judges should be precluded from ruling upon the way in which the executive implements the laws and interprets the laws. Over and above what is clearly laid down as a fair procedure and if the judiciary are able to show that the executive have breached the agreed procedure or have failed to carry it out correctly or have exceeded the powers of Parliament, then I would concede entirely that that's the job of the judiciary. I don't concede is that judicial review after judicial review can be available in order to prevent the will of uh, Parliament and the carrying through of legislative measures which are designed to protect public policy from abuse and therefore to undermine in a democracy the ability to be able to provide exactly the proportionality that I would imagine all uh, decent liberal-minded people would want which protects us from a far-right reaction. And I've always argued that the great difficulty in the Weimar Republic was people's unwillingness to take quite decisive action on difficult issues, uh, allowing the Nazis to be able to present themselves as the only ones who could save them. It uh, was said at the time that the reason the government backed down was because Lord Irvin, who was the former Lord Chancellor, put his name down to speak against it in the House of Lords. Is that why the government backed down? No. Um, the government backed down for one very simple reason, that if the judiciary, with all the power they possess that you've been describing, uh, were actually to effectively strike and not carry through, which is a threat that was offered, uh, then we would have had a constitutional crisis and we would not have been able to implement what was required in any case. So a compromise has to be reached in those circumstances. That is an interesting feature of our democracy that is very little debated, but is the reality of pragmatism. Well, it's interesting you should say that because Lord Wolfe it did indeed suggest in another lecture that if Parliament were to do the unthinkable, there were advantages in making it clear that ultimately there are limits on the supremacy of Parliament, which it's the court's inalienable responsibility to identify and uphold. Yes, would I, you accept that? No, I, I, I wouldn't accept that, but I wasn't prepared and I imagine my successors were not prepared to push that to the ultimate test of whether the judiciary in this country can override the elected Parliament. I was interested in, you wrote a book long time ago now, 1987, Democracy in Crisis, yes. and you said the right to free speech political organisation outside Parliament is an important liberty which must be preserved. The Conservatives, however, argued that any challenge to what Parliament does as the sovereign body was self-evidently undemocratic. On the other hand, any action approved by a parliamentary majority in the interests of law and order was said to protect our freedom. And then you gave a quote, the streets of our city are in turmoil, Communists seeking to destroy the country. The nation is in danger from within and without. We need law and order. Without it, our nation cannot survive. And then you pointed out, as you can obviously remember, the words of those of Adolf Hitler in 1932. But a similar tone appeared with increasing stridency in statements from our leading politicians in the 1980s. Absolutely. We were debating whether there was any democratically elected purpose 
for local government and whether elected democracy rested only in the House of Commons or whether it could, elect, in my case at the time, rest legitimately for the powers that existed, historically legitimately, for local government, just as that would be true now of the Parliament in Scotland and the Assembly in Wales. And I think these are very important issues and I, I don't resile from what I, I said in the mid-1980s any more than the carefully uh, considered and argued case I put in Politics of Progress in September 2001, so were overtaken by the obvious events a fortnight before that book was published. But is there not something uh, in the point that politicians, when they're in opposition, have a rather different approach to individual liberties than when they become uh, in power and become Home Secretaries? Yes, I think there is. Uh, and I think we're all subject to hyperbole. Um, and I accept entirely when you're viewing it from outside and when you're viewing it from a, with a particular point of view of what you'd like to see, you do have, a, you, you see it from a different angle. And uh, I think that is legitimate and I think we can argue it as we have been this afternoon. Can we look just at the broad range of statutes that were passed, partly when you were Home Secretary but also during the nine years, and what is said by the civil liberties lobby is that there has been a drip, drip erosion of civil liberties across a wide range of areas, criminal justice, terrorism, ID cards. What's your reaction to that? No, I, don't, I don't accept it for a moment. I think that the improvement in uh, privacy, the incorporation of the European Convention on Human Rights into the hum through the Human Rights Act, the freedom of information and access to uh, information, uh, I think that the changes on sex offenders and sex offences, I think the uh, laws that we've passed that uh, give victims uh, enormous rights that they didn't have previously, I think all of those things are critical to our human rights and so, do, and so are those laws relating to antisocial behaviour and the protection of individuals and whole communities. I think that uh, I've had this debate with um, uh, Liberty I think that if we see individual and human rights and collective rights in the round, we get a balanced approach, albeit that I've already conceded that there were unique circumstances in having to deal with the counter-terrorism legislation following the 11th of September 2001. Well, let's take antisocial behaviour orders because there's nothing unique in our society today compared to, say, the 18th century in terms of antisocial behaviour. Um, under the Antisocial Behaviour Orders Act, it is possible to end up in jail for five years for breaking such an order, even though you've committed no crime, you haven't even committed antisocial behaviour, you've merely, it's been thought that you're likely to do so, on evidence of someone that is never tested in cross-examination, who may have a grudge because it's hearsay evidence is admissible, and the state not even having to prove on the balance of probabilities that the behaviour was unreasonable. Well, firstly, on the latter point, we're dealing initially, not, not in terms of imprisonment for uh, the breach, but initially with a civil order. So, I mean, that, that's why the, the, the terms are different. And we're dealing with the, that, that order on the basis of repeated behaviour, which, of course, has to be justified. And, and the challenges have taken place to ensure that the procedures are, are robust in ensuring this happens, that there has to be justified evidence before such an order 
would be laid. Um, the but it doesn't have to be evidence on the balance of probabilities. No, because it's a civil order, and but the breach of it is not. Obviously, if, if it goes to court on the breach, then there is a, a, a robust procedure to ensure that that breach has to be uh, properly accorded the um, the procedure of law. I mean, the rule the rule of law here is that there is a civil order, and I mean, historically we, we've had civil orders, so there's nothing new about the, the use of a civil order. The use of the civil order has one set of precepts in terms of testing its, its weight, and the breach of it has another. It does, but the cumulative effect is that you, can, you have the full might of the criminal law against you, you end up five years in jail, you may never actually have committed a criminal offence other than the breach of the order, in terms of your original conduct, and it can all be based on hearsay evidence. Well, if, the evi if the evidence was not tested and the evidence was not robust, then of course the right of the individual to challenge it remains and has been tested, and proper representation is available. The, the, the truth of the matter in this is that the difference between the 18th century and the 21st century is that we all live cheek by jowl with each other. In the 18th century, the very rich could protect themselves by living entirely separate from those who were in the gin parlours. Um, and uh, increasingly, we're moving back towards people with gated communities. I don't want that because my community can't afford the gates. But this isn't a class issue. The people oh, who it, are is. it is a class issue. Well, the people who are likely to be on the wrong end of a miscarriage of justice are precisely the people who are on a council estate on the wrong end of an ASBO order and they don't have the protection that they would have in the case of a criminal trial for a criminal offence. Well, the, the people who wanted protection most were exactly those people on the council estates that I do represent who actually felt that the law was entirely in favour of the perpetrator of some of the nastiest and most unpleasant acts over a long period of time and that nobody was doing anything about it. My criticism of ASBOs, and I've made this clear recently, is that the intention should always have been to have undertaken remedial and supportive action for individuals and families and communities at the same time as taking very clear action and sending very clear signals to constant perpetrators of misery that we weren't going to put up with it, so that it was a much more balanced, two-handed approach. You mentioned there the, the balance of perpetrators, and it's a phrase you've used before. The point about the criminal justice system is that until somebody is convicted, you don't know whether a defendant is a perpetrator or an innocent person wrongly accused. And when the balance has been shifted, as it has, against the defendant in favour of the prosecution, is it not important to bear that in mind? Well, I think that the critical issue is to get to the truth. It, uh, we don't have a system that aims to do that, of course, because we don't have the investigatory system. We have a system that aims to provide justice in that we take every possible step to avoid the innocent being convicted as guilty. And I don't resile from that either, because you know it, it's, it's critically important that the number of people who are wrongly convicted should be absolutely minimised. What I am in favour of, however, is avoiding technical knockouts where people who are known to be guilty because of the smartness, which is their job, of the barrister, is, a, is, a, is a enabled to get them off without them actually proving that they were innocent or 
having proved that the evidence against them did not prove guilt, because obviously we have to prove people guilty rather than them having to prove themselves innocent. So in other words, to prove them guilty, but they get off on a technicality. Well, when you say known to be guilty, known by who? Well, been shown in court to have been guilty, but actually um, have some uh, failure in past procedure, given the procedures of what has to be disclosed and the nature of its disclosure to the defence. I mean, people who, who are uh, entering the podcast and are sharing in our discussion and debate may not know the kind of procedures that have to be gone through and still do and I would defend those procedures but may not know the modest changes that were made to them in terms of the way in which uh, they can be used and and you know it because you are a lawyer as well. Well you call them modest changes but when the Criminal Justice Act that you brought in uh, it very significantly relaxed uh, the rules of evidence, allowing in hearsay evidence and evidence of previous convictions. Uh, and only where, only where ju judges rule that to be relevant. But the presumption is now very significantly changed in favour of admitting it as against the position before, and that's why you did it. Yes, it, yes, it was because of the number of trials where pe people pretended that they'd never been involved in any such acts previously, and when a judgment was made and the previous evidence of convictions and of actions were revealed, the juries virtually fell off their chairs. The judge knew. Why not the jury? Can we take another example? The um, penalty notices for existing minor offences. A doesn't even have to be a constable. It can be a community support officer. can give you a penalty notice for, say, being drunk and disorderly. Uh, and rather like a parking ticket, if you don't either pay up or elect for trial within 21 days, for example because you're still drunk, you have automatically the penalty registered as a fine and if you don't pay the fine, you are liable to uh, go to prison. Yeah. Well, isn't that undermining the immutable principle that nobody should be found guilty of a criminal offence unless he has actually, by a jury or a magistrate, been found to have committed it? Well, I think it actually interprets pretty sensibly the kind of way in which if you've got an act taking place and, an, and you, you have evidence of that act taking place, you should actually take remedial steps both to prevent that person continuing it but also to provide a penalty that will discourage them from doing it again, just like a parking fine. If you park in the wrong place, you get a parking fine. But the point about the criminal justice system is that you are innocent until found guilty, and here you can be guilty even if nobody has found you guilty. Well, if you're grossly maligned and, and you're not guilty, you can, you can appeal against it. But, it, it, but it, it's working. I mean, the truth is it's working. Well, working in the sense that a lot of people may be either paying their fines or going to prison, but is it working in the sense that justice is being done? Well, it's working in terms of discouraging people from grossly antisocial behaviour. Can we talk about Iraq briefly? Before the invasion of Iraq, the government was warned by the Joint Intelligence Committee that al-Qaeda remained the greatest terrorist threat to Western interests, and that threat would be heightened by military invasion. Do you think, in retrospect, that it is unfortunate that the government did not give that advice greater weight? Well, the weight that you've placed on it 
is greater than the weight that the Joint Intelligence Committee placed on it because they raised the possibility, not the certainty, that that would be the case. Uh, however, for, for some of us, I can only speak for myself, the justification for action in Iraq was entirely uh, resting on the decision, uh, unanimous decision of the, uh, the United Nations uh, on the 7th of November 2002 to affirm Resolution 1441 and the warnings that that gave to Saddam Hussein. The difficulty, as we know, was getting a United Nations resolution in, in respect of enforcing that uh, uh, demand uh, which had clearly been breached by Saddam Hussein and uh, as with uh, the failure to get international agreement to go into Kosovo a decision to, to, to take on that challenge and to fulfill what was originally intended rather than have the bluff called and all the power that goes with it. But do you accept uh, in retrospect that the effect of the invasion in Iraq has been to increase the risk of terrorism both homegrown terrorism uh, and external terrorism in this country? No, I don't. I can see how people can make a, an argument for that, but it's that, that argument for such a proposition is predicated on the belief that it is terrorism that will, it is an attraction to terrorism which will emerge from people's deep disagreement with and disaffection with the actions of the United States and the United Kingdom in going into Iraq, rather than what I believe to be the case, which is a deep disaffection with our decision to do so, leading to the likelihood of other impacts on the way in which the Islamic community see the West and see their role in those countries, which is entirely different. In other words, I don't accept that what happened in terms of invading Iraq led Muslims to believe that they should join with Al-Qaeda in a way that they would not have done uh, from 1998 onwards in the attacks in East Africa or to have joined the encampments, which many were doing, in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan prior to the invasion of Iraq. But a joint Foreign Office Home Office dossier after the Madrid bombings identified Iraq as a recruiting sergeant for extremism. And just before the London bombings, the Joint Terrorist Analysis Centre, which includes officials from MI5 and MI6, uh, uh, said events in Iraq are continuing to act as a motivation and focus of a range of terrorist-related activity in the UK. Well, I set up the Joint Terrorism Assess Assessment Centre. I, I, I respect the judgment. I, the first judgment I, I don't disagree with because I do think that it's, uh, it's heightened tensions and like likely extremes, including of language. I don't accept that it's increased the likelihood more than the training camps in Afghanistan and the, uh, and, and the, the, the propaganda that was being peddled pr prior uh, to uh, the invasion of Iraq heightened the likelihood of uh, the joining of terrorism. I mean, one of the interesting features of our modern society is how we ignore what we want to ignore. For instance, how much publicity is there in the media of the near 2,000 people who have been killed in southern Thailand by Islamic extremists have nothing to do with the issues we're debating at all. But two of the uh, London bombers in their videos uh, referred to British foreign policy 
uh, as one of their motivating factors. Well, they would, wouldn't they? I mean, they were they, the, the, the propaganda uh, value for Al-Qaeda is not something I'm denying. I was answering a different question. Well, look at Guantanamo. Uh, Lord Goldsmith and Lord Faulkner have now called for Guantanamo to be closed down. But it, is it not um, regrettable that the government did not, the British government, did not call for it to be closed down many years ago? Well, the, the, the British government pressed and pressed privately, because I did when I was in Washington, for Guantanamo to be closed and for proper judicial procedures to be implemented. And I agreed entirely with Lord Goldsmith, who again and again indicated that the tribunal, the military tribunal system with the nominees that were being put on it was an unacceptable way of providing redress. And I, I was pleased when the Supreme Court um, came to that conclusion. Do you think it's right that it is, has acted as a recruiting sergeant for uh, Al-Qaeda extremism around the world, including I, this country? I think it's acted as a recruiting sergeant for uh, anti-Western feeling and for the distortion of views, but not necessarily as a recruiting sergeant for, um, f for suicide bombers. And bringing it back to full circle, uh, our own country and uh, your approach to these matters when you were Home Secretary, is there not uh, a general point that liberal democracies have got a difficult decision to make when confronted with terrorism, and that arguably the, the United States and the United Kingdom have overreacted uh, in terms of eroding civil liberties, uh, and that in the long run that is counterproductive? No, I, d I don't accept that. I think that the debate we've had has been crucial. I think that the countervailing pressures that exist in a free democracy are vital. I think they've worked extremely well. I think it is the job of those who have to answer when things go drastically wrong to put forward propositions on the evidence that they have, which they will believe will safeguard the country. And it's the job of those who espouse and hold individual liberty close to their hearts to argue, to debate and to challenge and that has happened over the last five years extremely effectively in this country. David Blanket, thank you very much. The time is uh, up and it's for the umpire to decide whether there's been checkmate or not on either side. <laughs> thank you very much.